I'm Brandon Rivers, host of the ADAPT podcast, with a note before we get started with this episode. The interview you're about to hear with Florida's first-ever Chief Resilience Officer, Julia Neshawat, was recorded in December of 2019, about four months after she was appointed by Governor Ron DeSantis. In February of 2020, Neshawat accepted an offer to join President Donald Trump's administration, where she'll serve as deputy assistant to the president working on homeland security and continuing her work on resilience, just at the national level. Julia Neshawat got a new gig last year. Keep the entire state of Florida afloat as sea levels rise. It doesn't matter uh, what side of the aisle you're on politically, everyone has come together as Floridians really understanding, you know, we're beyond that point of what those issues are, but rather how can we come up with those solutions. Her role in the state government is a first for Florida. This is the ADAPT Podcast. I'm Brandon Rivers, a reporter at WJCT News in Jacksonville, Florida. ADAPT is our online magazine about what people are doing to help Northeast Florida adapt to sea level rise and climate change. Today's guest has a unique perspective on those efforts, one that's new for Tallahassee. In 2019, something historic happened. Republican Governor Ron DeSantis appointed a chief resilience officer, a brand new position he created to help Florida deal with climate change and sea level rise. So our resilience officer, I I would just say, look at her resume. I mean, she's got a PhD. She wrote her dissertation in resiliency by looking at things like Hurricane Katrina, which to me, That is what we want, someone that's gonna look to see what we need to do to protect coastal communities. And it involves rising seas, it involves things like coastal erosion. Um, It also involves things like being more resilient when you do have hurricanes. So are we all good to go? Brady, you're good on this end? Yep. What about over there? Uh, We're set here. All right. Well, let's get started then. You were appointed in August. Uh, is that correct? On the 1st. So what is a chief resilience officer and why is it an important position? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it all started with how you even define resiliency when it comes to the ability to adapt to changing conditions and trying to prepare and withstand and recover from disruption. Uh, but with regards to this role, it's more of a coordinating role to work with all the departments and agencies to kind of come together. Um, as far as what I would specifically do, you know, to me, some of the key areas is being able to try to catalyze some of the uh, private and federal investments that are needed for our state, um, trying to obtain funding where we can for various uh, projects throughout the state, working with local officials, working with mayors, uh, serving as an advocate and, a, and actually a resource, if anything, um, to really be able to help um, cut some of that bureaucratic tape um, and help accelerate projects where needed overall. So it sounds like the, the focus is really on coordination and communication. Absolutely. I mean, how do we how do we really support local innovation? How do we get the word out there about the solutions? I mean, there's so much opportunity. It's not all gloom and doom uh, for our great state, and it really can drive our economy uh, in a lot of ways. You know, how do you get the best and brightest minds and have that open and transparent information out there and, and make that available to really foster an environment where we could really accelerate issues such as flooding and sea level rise? I want to take a second to explain why environmentalists feel Julia's appointment is such a big deal for Florida. 
For almost a decade, climate change was kind of a taboo subject at the state level, with then-Governor and now-Senator Rick Scott unofficially banning the term, according to the Florida Center for Investigative Reporting. Scott denies those allegations, but in a 2015 state Senate subcommittee meeting, lawmakers tried to get his director of emergency management, Brian Kuhn, to say the words climate change, but he wouldn't do it. Here's Palm Beach Democrat Jeff Clemens and his colleagues asking Kuhn about FEMA's requirement that states have a climate change plan before they can get emergency preparedness funding. What were those words you were using? I used climate change, but I'm suggesting that maybe as a state we use atmospheric reemployment. That might be something that the governor could get behind. So my worry, obviously, was was with these dollars, but in, in a more general sense that we as a state have to come up with some sort of plan in order to be able to make sure we keep our, our preparedness dollars for hurricanes. I'm assuming that is something that you are going to be speaking with the governor about and, and trying to take up so that we make sure we don't lose our dollars in the future. Uh, yes, Senator. And our next uh, state mitigation plan is due to the feds in 2018. So we have some time uh, in which to have that conversation. So even though that takes place, the, the edict starts kind of in, in March of 2016, we don't have to. That's correct. What I, what, but my understanding is at this point is it will require that future versions of our mitigation plan will be required to have uh, language discussing that issue. What issue is that? Uh, the issue that you mentioned earlier regarding. Uh, <laughs> Fast forward a few years and Florida has Julia Neshawat. So I'd like to learn a little bit more about you as well, because I think People are paying attention to this issue. They they hear bits and pieces of what you're saying, uh, but mm-hmm. they, they don't really know much about you yet. Uh, so how did you get to this point in your career? Well, you know, I started off as an Army veteran, and, um, you know, it, it really struck me when I was deployed um, in various places in Afghanistan and Iraq. And as I, I looked at the, is- the challenges and issues from a national security standpoint, it was interesting to also see the fact that there wasn't, you know, running water, there were power outages, challenges with resources, how that all really tied in to the, the national security aspect. And so um, between, you know, I've worn many hats, whether it was in uh, Washington, D.C. or in diplomacy, but being able to build upon um, the way other departments and agencies have worked together, whether it's in clean energy, whether it's in uh, looking at the nexus of environment and national security and climate change, I mean, it, it really all became such an interconnection that, you know, I, I knew that this is something that I wanted to pursue and, and help, you know, make a difference, as cliche as that sounds. And so, um, you know, being able to take these experiences and, and apply that here to the state of Florida is tremendous for my home state, especially. What have you been working on since you were appointed? I've been traveling all throughout the state, mainly to take stock and inventory and how we can really understand where we are today so we can kind of build on our plans and our strategies overall. So I've I've been everywhere between Jacksonville, um, Panama City, uh, Orlando, St. Augustine, Fort Lauderdale, Miami. Just, I was just in Key West. I've got a few more trips that are upcoming, but being able to really take that stock and inventory of what, you know, what are the vulnerability assessments that some of these local uh, officials have been doing. Uh, is, as you may know, there are compacts that have now evolved um, down, in, I was just down in Southeast Florida uh, for their compact climate summit. We've got a Northeast one, we've got an East Central 
resiliency uh, compact that just did a signing ceremony. Um, being able to work with all those compacts have, have been tremendous. So um, I've been putting together, you know, just a, a long list really uh, right now of of what is existing, what are, we, what are we doing when it comes to resiliency, what are some of those assessments, and really trying to inventory uh, a lot of that uh, that could help build um, really a list or a repository of, of best practices and lessons learned at this point in time. And, and as you've been traveling around and meeting all these people and, and learning about what all these communities are doing, uh, is there anything that really sticks out in your mind? Are there any anecdotes that you, you like to share? Well, first of all, you know, there's a misconception that it's only just on the coastlines that we have these issues, and we tend to forget there's also other fa- factors like precipitation, uh, inland flooding that we have to also consider, aging infrastructure. Uh, you know, the last four hurricanes were all Category 5. We're dealing with stronger storms, and, and so those those preparations, you know, sometimes, you know, the mindset is just, well, if you're on the beach, that's the only only that we're going to be focused on, and it's absolutely not the case. It's amazing to see there are a lot of similarities and and such a willingness. And I think now more than ever, again, with the governor's leadership, uh, you could see it doesn't matter uh, what side of the aisle you're on politically, everyone has come together as Floridians, really understanding, you know, we're beyond that point of what those issues are, but rather how can we come up with those solutions? How can we really build upon some of the successes in the past? And, you know, at at the same time, understanding it's too expensive to go at it alone, and we really need to collaborate and I just it it makes the job more exciting to know that you could be part of this and really helping move that needle. Uh, So it sounds like at this point pretty much all of your time has been devoted to to networking and and sort of uh, information gathering. Have there been any other projects that you've started working on up to this point? Oh, yes. Um, there's a lot of information and data that has been coming together. But at the same time, um, not every municipality or city um, is aware of some of the solutions that are out there. So I've been talking to various officials. In fact, I was just at a, a mayor's summit uh, on flooding and being able to, to share some of the um, technology and solutions that are out there with other municipalities that we're not aware that could also apply some of these programs. I've also been able to help facilitate, and it's still an ongoing process, of course, with some of the federal funding that's out there. I met with the the FEMA administrator on resiliency, and we were talking about how we can get Florida more involved with the BRIC program, which is building resilience in communities. And you've you've got all this money available on projects, and being able to harness that has been great. This is not post-disaster, but rather pre-disaster funding that's available. So if you're taking resiliency measures on a, pro- a public project beforehand, you know, there's there's solutions to that and funding available for you. You've said you're working on a statewide resilience plan that incorporates best practices from around the state. So what can you tell me about that plan? Absolutely. So I'm working on a statewide strategy, but it's in coordination with all our departments and agencies. And so we're pretty much coming together, being able to for example, identify some of the um, infrastructure investment opportunities that are out there, what each department is doing on resiliency, highlighting some of the top projects that we could really move forward, listing some of the challenges behind that. Also having a communications plan will be will certainly be critical. You, you could be doing all this great work, but if you don't get that messaging out there, you can run in circles. Another section, of course, will cover other solutions such as natural infrastructure. We tend to forget it. it's not always the traditional seawall that we could work 
very closely, for example, with the Department of Environmental Protection, um, really being able to improve community resilience by looking at this repository of case studies. So I want to be able to really list all of that out there, come up with some targets and goals, you know, with a strategy, and it can serve as a guiding policy. So being able to have an opportunity to implement that will be, will be, I think, critical to really, again, use some of that best data innovation and innovation that's out there. And then part of that would also have an adaptation master plan uh, where it can really give confidence to the market and lay a, a clear roadmap for the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years. What are some examples of, of best practices that you've come across? Uh, well, in addition to the natural infrastructure, for example, being able to promote the development of mangroves is key to certain parts of Miami and Key West. Being able to also identify other solutions such as stronger sand dunes, being able to address beach erosion, being able to also uh, push for uh, protecting our sea marshes, all part of this living shoreline concept, which could be just as effective as a climate solution than uh, a traditional, you know, seawall, as I was saying earlier. So that was one that was front and center that I that I realized as I was traveling throughout the state that not too many have taken focus on uh, aside from South Florida. That to me was a, was was something that I, I'm trying to push throughout the state to see how we can really incorporate that in some of the, the planning for these cities as a climate solution. Others would be pump valves, drainage systems. Uh, there's quite a bit out there. In fact, I was just in London with a delegation and representatives from all parts of Southeast um, of U.S., including Georgia and Louisiana and North and South Carolina, where we sat down and listened to a lot of these British companies who are working on their sewer systems and latest technologies and the businesses that are out there. So it was really exciting to see some of that technology. So my thought was being able to bring some of that back to, to the state of Florida when it comes to drainage systems. These are just a few examples, I think, that would be listed under some of the solutions, uh, especially when it comes to also critical infrastructure protection and flooding overall by sea level rise. So yeah, these natural solutions, I think every mm-hmm. speech I've heard you give, and you've brought it up several times already <laughs> in this conversation, you talk about natural solutions like salt marshes and mangrove shorelines. It seems as if you think those natural barriers are, are a better option than things like bulkheads and seawalls. In certain areas, yes. Um, not in, Again, it's going to depend upon the terrain and what part of the state you're in. So it's, it's not a, a blanket solution necessarily, but it's something that should be considered as part of that natural area. And how can the state go about supporting the use of green infrastructure like that? Oh, well, a big part of that will certainly be advocacy. And I know there's a lot of groups out there and even uh, the local chief resilience officers who've been out and about also working with their communities and also with the private sector too. So I think between the advocacy and making sure that all the stakeholders are at the table when it comes to the planning and design for future projects. Uh, that, that's where it's um, critical. You're listening to the ADAPT podcast. You may have heard my voice on WJCT's morning show, First Coast Connect. I'm the host, Melissa Ross, but I also do some climate change reporting for ADAPT. There are sections of our city that are going to be underwater. In Atlantic Beach, Mayor Ellen Glasser and the City Commission are making environmental planning a top priority. We have to do things through our building codes, through other efforts to educate people so that, you know, maybe we need to build above grade. Now, this interview with Atlantic Beach Mayor Ellen Glasser really stuck out for me 
because she, like so many other municipal leaders around Florida, is having to project far into the future to figure out how to protect vulnerable coastal communities. And she's acknowledging that some of these neighborhoods may well eventually be underwater. It's a sobering future that we're looking at here in Florida. You can check out all the videos, an interactive tool to see your property's projected flood risk, and even some written Q&As based on the interviews in this podcast. That's at AdaptFlorida.org. The ADAPT podcast is a production of WJCT Public Media. Financial support for ADAPT comes from our readers and listeners, with additional support from the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations and the 2040 Foundation. More at AdaptFlorida.org. Speaking of local chief resilience officers, I'm pretty sure Jacksonville is the only major city in the state that doesn't have one. I mean, even smaller communities are getting them now. St. Augustine just appointed their first chief resilience officer. And Jacksonville, I mean, Jacksonville's not getting hit as hard as, say, Miami is, but but we do have more shoreline than any other community in Florida Absolutely. because of the St. Johns River. So are you or would you encourage leaders to create this position or create some office to really focus on these issues? I think it would be helpful, but at the same time, you know, I would defer to the local officials on what they think would be best within their county or city. But I I will say, speaking from having traveled throughout the state, I've I've noticed, you know, some cities are more active than others. But I'd like to go back to the part about having the regional planning councils. I think that more than anything has, has been tremendous because you're having multiple cities come together, which is, I think, much more powerful than just doing it alone. I think Jacksonville certainly is just as vulnerable, whether it's because of, you know, the next hurricane, rising sea levels, flooding issues. And so I hope to be visiting out there sometime soon and and working with the team that's out there. And yeah, I would love to talk more about regional efforts. Uh, But but one more question Mm -hmm. uh, about Jacksonville's specifically efforts. Uh, I believe we're also the only major city that doesn't have a climate action plan. So is that something that you're encouraging all these local municipalities to start developing? I think it's important that, yeah, every city have has a community action plan, a resiliency plan, whether it's to prepare for the next hurricane or to look at the next assessments when it comes to rising sea levels. That's just important in any situation, and not just the cities, but also even local businesses all should have some sort of community action and resiliency plan. Uh, so in our area, the, the Northeast Florida Regional Council, which I, I know you're familiar with, uh, yes. has been leading the resiliency effort for years. But the Jacksonville City Council almost decided to pull out of it this year. And uh, the council's expected to reconsider it again when, when budget talks pick back up. So how important are regional efforts like this when it comes to resiliency? I will say very important. Um, it, again, it, it's just too expensive to go at it alone. And there's a lot of best practices out there. So having that regional collaborative effort is going to certainly be instrumental, especially for that area. You said at the Southeast Florida Climate Summit that the most vulnerable and underserved people in the state are going to be the most severely impacted by climate change and its symptoms. We need to recognize that the most vulnerable and underserved people in our state are going to be most severely impacted by these problems to include affordable housing and take a hard look at specific measures to really ensure that they're not overlooked when a disaster occurs, or that they're not priced out of a long-established community uh, due to rising insurance premiums or so-called climate change gentrification. What is the state doing to help these populations? 
Absolutely. So we've got working with the Department of Economic Opportunity. In fact, the governor was instrumental in getting more funding, mitigation funding, that is, to help with affordable housing. And so uh, we're working very closely with the municipalities and how we can help distribute that. Um, but yes, it's, it's it's such an important issue that we can't forget for those, especially from a socioeconomic standpoint. And national flood insurance program premiums are scheduled to rise significantly in 2021, I think. And rates only continue to rise along with sea levels. Could could that help motivate people to stop living in areas that are at risk of flooding? Or uh, do you think the state should be doing something to keep flood insurance premiums down? Well, I think what we could do is encourage more um, robust private firms to come in to help with insurance. But I really would rather advocate the fact that if we could take more resilient actions, that will lower the risk. And I think that's what's most important. And it kind of goes hand in hand with the insurance and, and, and the prices. But you'll notice that those who do take those resilient actions and those measures tend to get those lower costs. And insurance companies are, are wanting to come in, and you're seeing actually an increase of private companies coming in and wanting to invest in that standpoint. I know a lot of local communities are starting to, to update local building codes and where they allow development. Does the state need to change its building code to better account for future sea level rise? Well, as I said earlier, I'm, I'm still reviewing and taking stock, so it's it's all still under review at this time. So up to this point in Florida, the cost of adapting to climate change has been falling largely on local governments. What role do you see the state playing in climate adaptation going forward? Yes, it, that, that is true. Um, we do have a lot of programs out there, with especially with our Department of Environmental Protection, where we could help match certain funding that the cities come up with to help with various resiliency projects. In addition to that, as I said earlier, you know, there's also quite a bit of federal funding available that's out there. So I think it's important that, especially in my role and within the state, and the governor has already been forward leaning on this and trying to harness as much funding as possible for resiliency. So you, you frequently said that we need to take a holistic approach to respond effectively to the problems brought on by climate change. What do you mean by a holistic approach? Well, for example, I was down in the Southeast uh, Climate Summit and watching and seeing how Monroe County and Broward County and Miami-Dade and Palm Beach, uh, you know, for them to have their own individual plans is great internally, but at the same time if coming together in, in, in a compact to identify targets, to, to identify goals, projects um, that are obviously interconnected. Uh, you know, there's not necessarily borders uh, when it comes to these issues, especially with rising sea levels. So that to me is such a great example and why, and why it's so important that we work in this holistic approach. Also, just the issues at hand. You look at, you know, higher seas, stronger storms, it's all interconnected. It's interconnected to our energy systems. It's interconnected to education, to our health, clean water, uh, natural resources. We, we have to consider all these variables and aspects when it comes to um, this holistic approach to climate change. I was going through your resume, and the one thing that jumped out at me was you helped build the first Energy Resources Bureau. What does this division do? So it was a focus on the combination of the geopolitics of energy resources and what that meant for our economy and our foreign policy. We had a division that I helped oversee as well on on clean energy and energy transformation, as well as um, that nexus of climate and water and the programs that are available. So the importance of this bureau was to really reach out at an international level, working with various countries and being able to promote 
U.S. investment opportunities, promoting U.S. companies on energy projects worldwide, and uh, also the technology innovation of energy, whether it be in the you know hydrocarbon world, renewables, nuclear, being able to come up with a strategy, an all-above strategy, to promote our own economic strategy here in the United States. So it was a great opportunity to really build something from scratch and being able to focus on the economics, the foreign policy, natural resources together in, a, again, holistic approach for our homeland. And what are some other examples of how you've worked on issues related to climate change or resiliency in, in your career before you were appointed to this position? Oh, yes. Yeah. So in addition to uh, the Energy Bureau, I also was a researcher in Japan. In fact, I was there during the big tsunami earthquake when, you know, we had a 9.0 earthquake and then just, you know, 30 minutes later, this big black tsunami that came and devastated many villages and, and towns. And so a lot of my research was with the Japanese government, working with the companies, working with our embassy. That's what really inspired actually my dissertation to focus on natural disasters and rising sea levels and comparing such things to the United States, for example, with what happened with Hurricane Katrina and Hurricane Sandy. So I, it inspired me to kind of pursue that research and uh, even teaching later on on climate change and understanding those impacts and being able to come up with a model and a paradigm of how we can approach this since these issues will continue to evolve. And uh, I also used to teach at the Naval Postgraduate School on that. So being able to really step out of the bubble and think deeply about these issues really, I think, was very profound for me in the sense of how I could take that back to Washington and develop policies in place where climate change, environment, natural resources, and national security were all interconnected. And a lot of your experience ties into energy. So how do energy production, consumption, and security fit into your current role? It's, it's all very much interconnected. So when I did work in the Energy Bureau, um, we also focused on climate change and understanding like what t- energy technologies would help towards climate goals, for example. With the current role, that will certainly be part of our statewide strategy is looking at energy resources and how that would be helpful in moving towards certain targets and goals for the state. But it's also about the interagency experience, right? It's you're working with the Department of Transportation, you're working with economic opportunity, you're working with environmental protection, you're working with health and education, fish and wildlife conservation. I mean, all of those agencies are very important when it comes to the overall resilience climate strategy. And that's something I was able to also work at the federal level. And so tying that federal interagency experience down to the state interagency experience has been tremendous. And when we're talking about building resiliency to climate change and its symptoms, uh, mm-hmm. how, how do reductions in fossil fuel emissions tie in, or, or is that part of the conversation? Well, it's, it's all about having a hybrid, right? I mean, it, it can't, nothing's going to be completely zero-sum when it, when it comes to a particular energy resource. But uh, at the end of the day, we do need to look towards cleaner solutions, and there's great technology innovation out there to help with that. Is the state doing anything right now to specifically look at those changes in energy consumption? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Um, and as I've been traveling, I've, you know, I've noticed that energy has been part of those plans as well. And I'm working with our energy office here and uh, with our environmental protection department. So it's, it's certainly part of, part of that strategy. Do you think local governments have responsibility as well to look into uh, emission reductions? I think everyone has a responsibility.
Again, that was Julia Neshawat, Florida's first-ever chief resilience officer. To learn more about what's being done to adapt to sea level rise and climate change in northeast Florida, go to adaptflorida.org. There, you can get to know all six of the people profiled in this podcast. Thanks for listening to the ADAPT Podcast. I'm Brendan Rivers. Production help came from Lindsay Kilbride with editing by Jessica Palumbo. The theme music was composed and performed by Davin Llewellyn and Keith Phelps from The Conglomerate. The ADAPT Podcast is a production of WJCT Public Media. Financial support for ADAPT comes from our readers and listeners with additional support from the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations and the 2040 Foundation. More at adaptflorida.org.